you have your Bibles this morning, we're open to John chapter 20. We're going to look there. there. There was a preacher who wrote about the most miserable time he's ever had in his life as a follower of Christ. This was his story. He said, I was a freshman in college. I had a professor of philosophy who was an atheist. What he was doing teaching at a Baptist college, I still haven't figured out. But after finding out on that first day of class that he was an atheist, I took it upon myself to be his personal Billy Graham, to show him the light and bring him to God. I walked into his office full of pride, thinking the conversation wouldn't last long, and he'd eventually be on his knees weeping and giving his heart to the Lord. But by the time this conversation was over, the seasoned veteran skeptic had me so confused. When I walked out of his office, I wasn't even sure there was a God. He said, frankly, if I had walked into his office the way I walked out, I might have walked out the way I walked in. He had me uh, asking questions I never thought about before. And what I thought was a faith as hard as steel melted like a bucket on Miami Beach before all of his well-rehearsed intellectual arguments. See, have you ever lived in the shadow of doubt? I mean, does one minute it seem perfectly natural and unquestionable that God exists and He cares about this world and the next moment it seems uncommonly naive? How confident are you that you know God's desires regarding specific political and social and moral issues that face our society? Or do you ever wonder, is there a God? Is there heaven and hell? Do you ever doubt if prayer makes a difference? Or doubt your relationship with God? See, if you can relate to any of these scenarios, I've got some encouragement for you. Welcome to the club. (laughs) You've now joined the rest of us. You know, even the strongest believers in Scripture had their doubts. Go back and read the book of Psalms. David had his doubts. Read the book of Ecclesiastes and you'll find Solomon had doubts. Read the book of Job. It's full of doubt. The prophet Jeremiah, a God-called preacher, Read about him and you'll find doubts drove him to tears. See, the church has been afflicted with this spiritual virus called doubt since the beginning. Lee Strobel put it this way, we could divide Christians into three groups. The first consists of those who have doubted. The second would be those who haven't doubted yet but will. And the third are those who are brain dead. His words. See, let me put your mind at ease. There's nothing wrong with doubt. Faith presupposes doubt. By its very nature of what faith is, it has to be preceded by doubt. I mean, after all, if there's no room for doubt, there's no place for faith. One author said this, If faith never encounters doubt, if truth never struggles with error, if good never battles with evil, how can faith know its own power? You know, in my own life, If I have to choose between a faith that stared doubt in the eye and made it blink or a naive faith that's never known the firing lines of doubt, I'll choose the former every time. Also understand this. There is a difference between doubt and unbelief. See, doubt asks questions. Unbelief won't listen to answers. And so this morning, we're going to look at a man in the Bible who had such a problem with doubt that That's actually his nickname. He's known as Doubting Thomas. 
And even though Thomas got kind of a bad rap through the years, he teaches us how to deal with our doubt. How to handle about with doubt. Because he could starve his doubt and feed his faith, and he shows us how to do it. And so if you've ever dealt with doubt in your life, or maybe you're dealing with it today, or maybe you know someone who's, who's dealing with doubts about who God is and His goodness and His grace, maybe even His existence. Let me encourage you with these lessons from, from the life of Thomas. It begins here. Isolate the cause. See, let me set the scene for you. Jesus has just been raised from the dead. He's appeared to the other disciples. And now these disciples are trying to persuade Thomas that that they've seen Jesus, that he is alive. But Thomas doubted. He's the only one that doubted, but there's a reason for that doubt. Verse 24 holds the key to understanding what really happened. John, John 20, verse 24 says this. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Now in the verses preceding this, we read that Jesus appeared to the other disciples. He showed himself to them. He spoke to them. But Thomas wasn't there. He missed the fireworks. He missed the opportunity to satisfy his doubt and strengthen his faith. And so if you're living in the middle of doubt right now, the first thing you need to ask is why? Why am I doubting? Most of the time, doubt has a common cause. Let me give you examples. When a sudden, unexpected tragedy comes into our lives, we immediately begin to doubt the goodness of God. Or when we pray, and we pray for specific outcomes, and and what we pray for either doesn't happen, or maybe even the problem gets worse, we begin to doubt the power of God. Or what about this? We live right And we try to do exactly what God wants us to do. And yet we still suffer for it. We doubt the justice of God. Sometimes sin in our life causes us to doubt. Because whenever we live in sin, it draws us further away from God. And the further that you are away from God, the more that you'll doubt God. The more that you doubt your relationship with God. And so if you're in a bout with doubt right now, be honest with yourself and ask this question, why? Why am I doubting? What has caused my doubt? In Thomas's case, it was absence from fellowship. He wasn't where he should have been when he should have been there. Or he wouldn't have been having the doubts that he had. But Thomas does do something which is the critical next step that you have to take if you're going to properly deal with your doubt. And that is communicate it. You have to communicate your doubt. There are so many people today that live their lives uh, sitting silently in a dark room of doubt and they're so ashamed they don't want to let anybody know it. They're afraid of what people might think and if they knew that they had these doubts about Jesus or God or the Bible or, or church or, or even doubts about the purpose and meanings in life. The sad thing is I'm afraid there are a lot of believers in Christ who have four words written across their struggles. Their doubts of faith. These four words are don't ask, don't tell. Right? They've placed this off-limit sign across their heart and they're, they're so afraid of being transparent with these questions 
that, that are not only honest questions, but are in need of answers. So give Thomas credit. He had the courage to question the crowd. He had the courage to raise his hand. He had the courage to ask the question that demands the answer. Verse 25. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hand, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. See, this wasn't the first time Thomas communicated his doubt. Chapter 14 of John, uh, Jesus was talking about heaven for the first time to his disciples and he gave them those, those famous words, right? John chapter 14, verse 1. He said this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again and receive you unto me, so that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Now Jesus hardly had finished these great words of encouragement and faith, and Thomas blurts out and he says, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? See, do you want to know the truth? My guess is that every other disciple sitting there was thinking the exact same thing. But only Thomas had the raw guts to say so. And he wasn't trying to be belligerent or, or disrespectful, but he just had honest doubts about what Jesus had just said. And we thank God that he had the courage to speak up because it allowed Jesus to give us one of the greatest statements of faith as an answer to one of the greatest questions of doubt. Because Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I mean, think about it. If Thomas had never communicated his doubt, Jesus may never have uttered one of the greatest statements ever. And don't miss how Jesus handled this doubt. He, he didn't rebuke Thomas. Right? He didn't look at him and go, Oh, Thomas, you're just such an idiot. Thomas, you don't get it. Hey, have you not learned all this time that you've spent with me and listened to me teach and seen the miracles I performed? You don't get it yet. No, Jesus didn't do that. He appreciated the honest question. He gave him an honest answer. See, God is big enough to handle any questions you throw at Him. He's not offended by your doubt as long as you're honest with Him. Don't you think God would rather have you be honest with Him and just communicate your doubts rather than trying to live a lie and confess a phony faith? I mean, He knows what's going on inside anyway, right? He knows the doubts you have. Hello, He's He's God. <laughs> But when you communicate your doubt, you're, you're on that road to seeing whether or not your doubt is well-founded. And that leads to the, the third stage of getting to the point where you can finally say about your relationship with God, about your questions with life, that, that there is no doubt about it. And the third step is this. Investigate the facts. One preacher said this, when does doubt become unbelief? When you let it. 
The first step to deciding whether or not your doubt is justified is by investigating the facts. And that's what Thomas did when he said, verse 25, he said, before I'm going to believe, I've got to see it. I've got to touch it. I've got to feel it. In other words, I've got to investigate the facts. See, let me be honest with you. If you're living in the land of doubt, there's a difference between an honest doubter and dishonest doubter. A dishonest doubter says, I doubt something is true, and I don't want my mind confused with these facts. I'm just going to continue to live in my doubt. But an honest doubter says this, I doubt whether or not this is true, but I'm willing to investigate the facts. I'm willing to see if perhaps my doubt is unjustified. True doubt never ignores the facts. It stubbornly pursues the truth. And there's just something healthy when you do your own investigation. See, Thomas wasn't just going to believe what other people told him to believe just because they told it to him. He wanted to investigate it for himself. He wanted to touch the hands of Jesus and feel the scars and put his fingers in where the spear wound was in his side. He wanted to make up his own mind whether or not he believed. There's a church spoken about in the New Testament. It's a little church. You may not really remember hearing about it. It's a church in Berea. And the Apostle Paul went to that church and he preached to it. And this is what we read about those wonderful people. Acts 17, it says this, The people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. They listened eagerly to Paul's message. And they searched the Scriptures day after day to check up on Paul and Silas to see if they were really teaching the truth. See, one of the most practical ways that you can apply this message in your own life, one of the best ways you can starve your doubt and feed your faith, is study the Bible. Read God's Word. There's even an entire book in the New Testament, 1 John. And it was written to simply dispel the doubts of Christians who really wondered whether or not they had a relationship with God. Study it for yourself. Now notice, there's a very important timeline in the story that, that I want you to get. I don't want you to miss this. Verse 26 says this. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So here we go. It's the same scene in the same room where Jesus had met his disciples earlier. But a week has passed. A week has gone by, and everyone is still believing except Thomas. He's still the only doubter in this room. But, but did you notice what he did? He hung around. He came back. He stayed to investigate the facts. That, that's what doubt does. Doubt says, I'm going to stay and investigate the facts and find out the truth for myself. Unbelief walks away. Unbelief says, you know what, you believe what you want, but I'm out of here. I, I don't want to know whether I'm right or wrong. Again, there's nothing wrong with doubt. But there's something wrong with a doubt that refuses to investigate the facts. It's been said that a Christian should believe simply. But a Christian should not just simply believe. Somebody, somewhere, at some time is going to challenge your faith. 
and not knowing why you believe what you believe, that's just as bad as not knowing what you believe. That's one of the reasons we should investigate the facts. So we at least know not only what we believe, but why do we believe it. So do you see what you're doing with doubt when you isolate the cause? When you communicate your doubt, when you investigate the facts, you're not just dealing with it. You're actually strengthening your faith. And that leads to the last step. Where you can come to this point in your life where you can say that your relationship with God, that that your trust in His goodness and His love, that there is no doubt about it. And the final step is evaluate the evidence. You know, if you take a question mark and you straighten it out, what do you have? (laughs) An exclamation point, right? After Thomas investigated the facts, he evaluated the evidence, and here is the result. Verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. You know why one of the reasons a lot of people don't confront their doubts? I think it's because deep down inside, they're afraid the doubts are true. That their doubts will win. That maybe what they believe has been wrong all this time. But has has it ever occurred to you that, for example, the new kid on the block, as far as believing how our world came into existence, is evolution. Right? Evolution has only been basically accepted in most areas of thinking for about a hundred years or so. And yet the idea of the creation of the world being created by a supernatural God, it's been here since the beginning of time. See, there's not a doubt, there's not a skeptic, there's not a single questioner that can ever come up with a question that God hasn't already thought about. That God doesn't have an answer for. See, the truth of the matter is we don't have to check our brains at the door of Christianity to be a follower of Christ. If you investigate the facts about Jesus, if you investigate the facts about the truth of this book, the Word of God, if you evaluate the evidence, you're going to find that beyond a shadow of a doubt, evidence demands a positive verdict. This book is true. God is real. Jesus is exactly who He said He was. And see, I realize that we can't literally touch Jesus. We can't literally feel His hands and His feet and His scars on His side. That's why He ended it this way. Verse 29. Then Jesus told them, Because you have seen Me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Do you know who the those are in that sentence? Blessed are those. It's you. And it's me. I haven't seen Jesus. I've never touched Jesus. I've never felt Jesus. But I have to tell you, I know Jesus. And I love Him. Jesus is more real to me than the air I breathe and the skin on my bones. Because I've examined the evidence. Because I know that there is no doubt about it. Jesus is who He says He is. And He did what He says He did. A lawyer named Frank Morrison was an atheist. 
Didn't believe in God. Thought the Bible was a joke. Certainly didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And so he set out to put an end to this crazy story once and for all. And he began to examine all the historical evidence with his legal logic, with his judicial experience and investigative expertise. He sifted through every possibility that might account for the disappearance of the body of Jesus. And the only explanation he came up with was what he found in the Word of God. And in the end, he surrendered his life to Christ. He wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? See, do you have doubts? Bring your doubts to the Word of God. Bring your doubts to the Son of God. Be honest about them. Be open with them. Investigate the facts. And if you evaluate the evidence, you can come to a point where you say, when it comes to the love and the grace and the mercy of God, there is no doubt about it. Pray with me. Father God, I thank You that I can come to You with my doubts. I thank You that I can come to You with my questions. And I know that you won't ignore me. You won't leave me. But you'll listen to me. I thank you, God, even more for the truth of your word, which we can stand on, which we can place our faith in. So Lord, help us, each and every one of us, to come to you, to study your word, so that our faith may be strengthened, that we may stand firm in your truth. Amen.